Race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. Good morning. My name is Alyssa Fuchs. I'm here with Selena Hill, who's on the PC yes, One and Good morning, oh, everyone. And Jackie uh, Cohn, who who's is here with us. Just we sitting here and are not having being productive. The all female show today because Stanley is getting his five borough bike tour on. Yes, um, he decided to go ride in the bike tour for the first time. And he left us, but you know what? It's all about women today. And yeah. we, always, we even have a woman coming in studio as a guest. So I think that, like, uh, it was just yeah. meant to be. And we for have us. a woman as our first guest as well. Oh, right. So, so it's this all is about the, the women. All woman show today. It definitely is. So, yeah. um, welcome, guys. Um, I know you introduced me, but I don't think we gave our Instagram or Twitter account. No, we nope. did not. Well, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, look, hold on. I'm not used to being in front of the camera like this. I'm all adjusting my scarf <laughs> yeah, you're on the Ustream. Out. I'm like, hold on, how does Stanley do this? Okay, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram or um, Twitter, you can do that at be her, excuse me, Miss Selena Hill, M-S, of course, M-S-S-E-L-E-N-A. Hill, H-I-L-L. But if you want to tweet us at the radio station, it's BeHeard underscore radio, which is what you almost said. Yeah, it is what I almost said. And Jackie, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Are you just sitting over here? Insta- <laughs> yeah, I am on Instagram. I am on Twitter at Jackie Cohen, J-A-Q-I-C-O-H-E-N. I haven't been tweeting enough lately. I've been tweeting either. a lot lately. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at, at Alyssa Fuchs, and that's I-L-Y-S-S-A. I've been tweeting a lot because of Baltimore. Yeah. And a lot of times when I'm out at the protests and then I finish up protesting and I go home for the night, yeah. and then I'll send a few more like tweets, but I'll always tweet like Martin Luther King or... Um, the other day I, I tweeted Ben Franklin, those, you know, basically uh, something along the lines of those pe- people really won't start caring until people who are unaffected start right. caring. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, Twitter's been the best way, I think, for me to follow, you know, it's been really on point with current events and what's been happening and certainly um, events in Baltimore, New York and protests, you know, well, it's a protest monitor. Twitter. No, it, it really is. And speaking of the protests, we're actually starting off the show talking about the uprising in Baltimore. It's made national news coverage. I'm sure you guys have seen it, have been talking about it. If you aren't participating in it, as Alyssa and um, Jackie have um, throughout the last week. So we're going to talk about that. But not only that, but the largest systemic issues that are coming into play here. I mean, this is not just over the death of Freddie Gray. Gray. We know that this is a much larger issue that's been going on for decades here, and we're going to dig right into that, and we have a very special guest calling in from the Open Society Institute, um, which is, I want to just, you know, quick disclaimer, like, let's just clear the air. I know that that was, like, some controversy around, like, that institute, the Open Society Institute. Well, you know, it's interesting because I was getting some feedback from some people who are more libertarian who were like, why is it that the left right. has such a big problem with money in politics and with big donors like the Koch brothers backing right wing stuff, but they don't have an issue when people like George Soros and open societies back left wing stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, what and Selena and I were having this conversation before and I said it's kind of like two sides of a coin. On one side, we really would like to not have big money backers on either side backing Um, things. However, we're at a position now where it's kind of like, well, if they're going to do it, then we have to do it also because otherwise we're not going to be able to compete. Yeah. So, um, 
But yeah, I mean, obviously, we're being very open about the fact about who we're having on. And we'll definitely speak to our guests about, you know, how her group influences policy. But I just thought it was important to put it out there. Yeah. Um, And actually, I did respond to this uh, comment, um, at least by saying that uh, many grassroots groups on both sides of the aisle get money from rich backers. And if the money goes to promote a cause that you care about, um, then, you know, we should support it. Yeah. And I think that we should support it, too. But I know that you got some commentary. I got a tweet about it. Um, But we'll have to talk about that a little later on the show. And in the second hour of the show, we're actually going to talk about gun regulation and gun control. There will be a big protest here in New York City in Brooklyn next Saturday on March 9th um, about gun regulation. May 9th. May 9th. 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 Thank you. May 9th. See, I'm in Women's History Month. That's what happened there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we're going to have, we actually have a very special guest coming into the studio to talk more about that. And also, there's been a recent, last month in April, there were 21 shootings in New York City in one weekend. So, you know, when you have these type of um, shootings and this type of um, gun violence going on, it's definitely an issue. And it's an issue that we've been talking about and covering. And it's been um, one of the center poles in the national discourse for a while as well. So we're going to touch on that here. And then later on the show, Alyssa will be breaking down the quickie on same-sex marriage. Right, Alyssa? Yeah. And so uh, if you didn't know, everybody pretty much knows. And we've talked about same-sex marriage on this show a lot because there's been a lot of news about it. Um, and you know, we were actually, I was talking with my friends about it last night, about what we think the outcome of the case is going to be. But this is, you know, the big case. It finally went to the Supreme Court. Marriage got its day in court. I'm going to tell you what the legal arguments are, tell you how they might play out. And then in June, um, it's probably going to be the last week of June, which will potentially coincide with the pride parade but it may turn out that the decision actually comes out the day after pride on that monday because pride's on a sunday um so it may not be until the day after unfortunately but yeah um eventually there's going to be a decision in which case we we may revisit this here on the show yeah definitely that note i think we're going to be taking a quick break but when we come back we're going to be talking about what's going on in baltimore with diana morris from the open societies foundation And we are back. back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. Uh, I'm I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I'm Jackie Cowan. What's up? And Stanley's not here. So it's a good day. It's a good Sunday. (laughs) Also, I think I may have forgot to mention, if you're listening, um, the politically preposterous community, we're going to be taking comments and questions from there as well. I know we've already received some. We're going to try and get people's comments and questions mentioned on the air later on in the segment. Um, But we're going to get to talking to Baltimore and make sure you keep tuning in for the News Roundup, our conversation about gun control and our final quickie on same-sex marriage. Yes, yes. So we're starting the show off again talking about the Baltimore uprising. I'm pretty sure everyone has been glued to YouTube or TV if that's how you choose to get your your news. Or or maybe it's just me, but I think most people have been really tuned in about the death of Freddie Gray and the indictment that just happened on Friday. We know that Maryland State attorney Marilyn Mosby she announced that the six officers involved in the death of Freddie Gray will actually face criminal charges Mm -hmm. three happened to be white three were um, African-American but they will they are facing criminal charges one is actually being charged with second degree um, murder we have two with manslaughter and two with just assault yeah and just because people have asked about that how is it second degree murder he's actually being charged with what's called 
depraved heart murder in Maryland or in New York, which is known as essentially depraved indifference murder. And it's being it's not it's different from second degree murder where you intentionally kill somebody that you intend to kill. Like premeditated. Right. Well, no, that's first degree murder in New York where it's we'll not get into that. Um, (laughs) But what essentially what that charge is about is that you are so depraved. You have such a wanton and willful depravity towards human life that it will be considered a murder. Right. Um, So that's exactly how you get a second degree murder charge. And, And so what they're arguing is that the driver of the car had such indifference to whether Freddie Gray lived or died based on the way they that he was put in the van and right. also the way that the van was driven around, yeah. that it would qualify as a murder. So that's how you wow. get, just for those of you who can, are interested in that legal aspect of it. No, that's very true. And guys, if you want to call up, the number is 212-650-6903. No, that, I mean, that's exactly right. And so what's been going on in Baltimore, there were a string of peaceful protests for at least one week. We didn't hear too much about it. Um, you know, we, we saw Freddie gray the hashtag and you saw things going on but you didn't hear about it and it wasn't until this past week in which you saw more looting and rioting and violence and buildings set on fire then we get we get national press coverage we get a, um, a, um, a number of reporters on the ground and it's headlining news right and a lot of media outlets especially Fox like you know Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly they focus so much on the sensation of this violence taking place in Baltimore I actually saw a clip on Fox News it went viral where um, this Fox News reporter he was talking to council member Nick Mosby and he was asking him like okay what do you think about the the rioting and the looting that's going on and he was like well you know what I it's wrong and I condemn it but we have to remember that there's a number of contributing factors to why right. people are so angry. Number one, when you lack educational opportunities, you don't necessarily know how to articulate that anger and frustration that's been built up and, and building up and culminating for so long. And it's coming out like this. But again, we know it's wrong and we're stopping it. And he said again, well, do you see them looting that liquor store right behind you? And he was like, again, sir, I, I mean, yes, that is wrong. And we're doing everything we can. But there are systemic problems. There's poverty, there's homelessness, there's hopelessness, there's you know, again, uh, no access to, to good education and people don't see a way for, for them to have some type of upward mobility. And that's what's really plaguing this system. And the, and the, and the reporter asked him again. And you know what? Nick, Mo- Nick Mosby, he finally just got really frustrated and he just walked away. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good that's the only thing you can do in that situation where you're being asked the same question over and over again that I think he answered very eloquently. Right. I mean, the way that I think about it, I've talked to a lot of people this week that have said, you know, that have commented on the violence. Right. And the looting and have, um, you know, have said, doesn't this take away from the protest at hand? Like, doesn't this distract everybody? Like, is that but. You know, what I say to that is, you know, if that's what the media is focusing on are the violent riots and protests, um, that's the problem with the media more than right. I mean, it's it's certainly not. Well, it's because the media is not there focusing on the systemic issues that are going on in Baltimore right. for, for years and years and years. I mean, you have overarching poverty, lack of education, lack of economic opportunities, lack of jobs. There's all these underlying issues that contribute to, you know, all to the systemic problems. But the media doesn't and focus on them. And as also Selena pointed out, when they were having peaceful protests in the first week, the media wasn't down there focusing on that. The media only gets involved to focus once, uh, you know, people start looting and setting stuff on fire. And you know what? I'm not in favor necessarily of, uh, you know, violent outrages. But at the same time, when you're talking about like 
you have these people talking about how like it's more important to protect property than it is to protect the rights of people or the lives of people and and then there's also the hypocrisy of people like Fox News when those white guys were out in the desert on Bundy Ranch threatening to have an armed insurrection against the federal government over land that the federal government owned the people on Fox were like Good for them. You know, right. I, I no, can't no, even, it's, I can't it's, even it's say what I want to say, but put it this way. They were getting aroused yeah. over the fact that <laughs> no, white men were out there with guns threatening law enforcement. Right. When black people threaten law enforcement right. or even perceived to have threatened law enforcement. You know what JFK once said? Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. It's true. There's a big difference between black rage and white rage. And we've seen that time and time again in America. But I want to introduce the very special guest we have on the line to join the conversation with us. We have Diana Morris. She is the director of the Open Society Institute in Baltimore, and she's also heading the Open Places Initiative. Um, Good morning, Diana. Oh, Oh, let me get her back on the line. And we're having some technical issues. While we try and get Diana back on the line, somebody had asked me... Um, uh, on Politically Preposterous, and obviously if you have a question or comment, make sure you tweet us, um, isn't the police citizen problem in Baltimore more about class than race? And I think even I could answer this question, um, and I have a feeling Diana, once she comes back on the line, will agree with me, but I wrote, to a certain extent, yes, but there's an interplay between race and class. And then Pamela wrote back, I think most of it is because of a sense of entitlement and bullying. All marginalized people are way easier to mistreat without ramifications. Mm. And no, I don't think racism is dead. I think it's getting worse the media and political hate and fear-mongering contribute to it yes yeah so so I think I mean you made the point before but I certainly agree that there's you know it scares a lot of people that there's rioting and that there's this violent um, behavior but you have you don't have to condone it necessarily to understand why it's happening and to understand that this is part of a bigger problem and when you're you know you're stifled and you're treated in this way for so long where there's violence perpetuated against you and you're dealing with it for so long without reacting in any way how can you you know judge or blame anyone for having it you know Right. I mean, listen, I tired an, another great quote. I don't want to like sit here on the air and like read great, great quotes right. from great people. But there are a lot of them are truisms that need to be dealt with. I mean, like Martin Luther King said, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Right. So that's what it comes down to. When you keep oppressing people and oppressing people for so long that, and, you know, and, and with income inequality and the people who are bearing the brunt of it. And then also, as our great commenter pointed out, that people who are oppressed are the easiest people to take advantage of. I mean, I see that every day in my practice. And, uh, um, you know, like the people are take who are being taken advantage of the, the most um, are people who are in minority groups. I mean, right. like I talk to people all the time. I, I say, do you want to guess how many of my clients are white? And it's like three. Right. Um, and, and it's even a comment I made the other day. I was at a rally up on 125th Street. And I said, you know, they're not Coming, you know, people are spitting on the sidewalk and smoking a joint on their balcony and drinking a glass of wine, and yet no on the Upper East Side, but they're not ticketing people on the Upper East Side for that. They're right. only ticketing people up in this community, and right. and quite frankly, that's a load of crap. Right. Well, it goes back to that issue of sort of white privilege and the criming while white, you know debate that we've had on the show before where you know white people in this country certainly have experienced the the benefits of community policing right Right. where they can call the cops and expect that the cops are going to come and 
you know, do their best to protect them, protect their rights. And this is certainly a white privilege to get to experience that when it should be something for everyone. That's, you know, the point of community policing is to protect the people that you serve. Right. But certainly in Baltimore, in parts of New York and cities and towns all over the country, that is, you know, a different reality for many groups of people um, who don't get to experience the the benefits of policing. Absolutely, absolutely. On that note, I believe we have now solved the technical issue. We have Diana Morris from Open Societies on the line with us. Good morning, Diana. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry about that, um, Diana. But again, Diana is from the Open Society Institute in Baltimore. She's also spearheading the Open Places Initiative. Um, and again, we're having this conversation about the Baltimore uprising. And I wanted to get her feedback. You guys had great commentary. But Diana, when it when it comes to what's going on in Baltimore, can you speak to some again these larger issues? You know, I, I did some research and I found out that um, when it comes to education, when it comes to joblessness and um the neighborhood where freddie gray is actually from those numbers actually double the amount that they double the rate in the state itself so you see like this concentrated in this concentrated area of poverty there's so many other issues can you speak to those issues yes i'd be happy to i mean we can talk about education uh, maybe in particular just as an example uh you know, I note that it was way back in 1968 that the Kerner Commission talked about, uh, you know, the two societies that make up the United States. And, uh, you know, the thing that's very uh, upsetting is how little progress we've actually made on discrimination and segregation, um, housing practices, unemployment, and, and educational attainment. Now, I will say... You know, in the area of education, there has been some steady progress, but if you see where we are today, it's still so far uh, from the mark of where we'd want to get. Right. Uh, I mean, for example, um, and, and this is an area, um, actually, where there's a lot of, there's some gender difference, too. If you look at the graduation rates uh, for African-American males, it's around 62.5%. So just think how many young African-American boys are not graduating um, in a four-year period. A few more can do it within a five-year period, but still it's really far. Uh, when it comes to African-American uh, girls, they're, they're graduating at a, a sort of 76% rate, so that's better, but it's still not as good as what we would have statewide. Right. Um, so that's part of the challenge. But if you dig a little deeply, uh, you, uh, you can begin to see what, what are some of those mechanisms here, what's happening. And one thing I know at Open Society Institute we've been focusing on has been suspensions. There's been a huge number of kids, particularly kids of color, particularly African-American boys, who have been suspended over the years from school. And these have been <laughs> for causes that really have not required that. So. The good news is that the Baltimore City public school system uh, and partners, including us, have worked and we've been able to reduce suspensions that were as high as 26,000 kids being suspended every year to below below 5,000. 
Right. Um. So, so Diana, that leads me to the question of, so why exactly <clears throat> is this coming? We is this happening? We know for a fact that you know it does start very early um, amongst the youth, and then you know if they're getting suspended and they're being very discouraged in school, that does affect their opportunities to be employed as an adult and their outlook on life. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys are definitely getting to the root of the problem. Um. And I know that that is one of the roots of the problem. And you also spoke about you know the progress in the city. But but then when we look at Baltimore and we realize that the mayor is black over, I think it's what, 3,000, um, over half of Baltimore's police force, they're also African-American. Um, the city council president is African-American. The, the police, district attorney. The police chief is ac- African-American. And I, I actually read this online where someone was like, OK, the issue is not racial right you know because they have like this there's this progress you have a lot of people of color being elected to different um positions of authority there and they can and they're and they're changing things um but you still see these problems affecting this racial group so what would you say to that well i've seen articles for example a recent article by david simon who you all mm-hmm. know uh you know is involved with the wire and um the series homicide and so on um, I think what that analysis is missing is realizing this is not about individual bias. Sometimes, of course, we have that. You know, sometimes there are people, because the town is so segregated, people really don't get to know each other. People don't really, I mean, one of the great advantages, I think, living in New York is that people really get to know each other and enjoy each other um, and, and, and have a kind of empathy that develops. But when you live in a place that's highly segregated, there literally is less interaction, and so there can, in fact, be uh, individual bias, uh, lack of understanding, lack of empathy, and we do have to address that. But I think the bigger issue here, and, this, and when uh, David Simon says that he thinks this is a class issue and not a race issue, I think what's missing there is understanding this is about structural racism. This is about the kind of racism that results from policies and practices that whole agencies undertake. So, yes, uh, you know, the good news I think, is if you have a more enlightened leadership, uh, including people from uh, you know, different backgrounds, African-American backgrounds, then you can become more aware and you can provide leadership, but you still have to deal at the institutional level. For example, our police force is disproportionately large. Uh, so that's, that's mm. an issue. That allows for a lot of over... Uh, policing. We also um, have most of our police coming from outside the city. There's often a lot of vacancies. There's a lot of turnover because people get trained in Baltimore City and then they go off to the surrounding counties where the pay might be better and the job might be easier. Um, so you don't have as much familiarity. As, um, as people talk a lot about um, the police that used to literally walk around more. And there have been small adjustments. Recently, Commissioner Bass, literally, I think about two or three months ago, required each of uh, his people who are on parole and not back at the office to spend a half an hour literally out of their cars and walking. Oh, wow. But, but you can argue that's not enough. Right. Uh, but it's a beginning in the right direction. It, that's- it, and that's exactly right, Diana. Hold on with that thought. We actually have to go to a quick break. But when we come back, we'll continue talking about the Baltimore uprising and the larger issues at hand right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And.
And we are back. This is, my name is Alyssa Fuchs. I'm here with Selena Hill and Jackie Cohn. We're talking to Diana Morris from the Open Societies Foundation about uh, what's going on in Baltimore with respect to uh, the underlying issues of poverty, lack of education, um, and other systematic uh, racism, unemployment, etc. Um, and so, hi, Diana. Uh, my name is Alyssa. One of the things that you had mentioned um, was about the policies and practices of the city. Now, a lot of people on the right, and I don't necessarily agree with them, but I thought I'd bring this point up. They have said that, you know, Democrats and progressives essentially have been running the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore for a long, long time, and that these problems are caused by big government, right? That's a classic, like, libertarian conservative line. It's big government, it's big government, and if we got government, these progressive policies out of Baltimore, and that we allowed the free market to to work its way, then these people would have more jobs and more economic opportunity. Is that something you agree with? Do you think it has to do with, like, who's in power? I mean, how does that work? You know, I guess heard uh, Congressman Rand uh, say something to the same effect, uh, I guess, on Face the Nation. And, again, I think it's missing the point. This is uh, There are always going to be exceptional persons who can, despite all odds, uh, break through and um, be successful, and that's very consistent with this uh, a, a story we tell about, um, you know, entrepreneurship in, in the United States. What that is completely missing, though, is an understanding of the very real barriers that people uh, who are poor and who uh, have experienced uh, racial discrimination for generations experience, uh, confront. And you know that has to that results in very real patterns. Uh, Baltimore, for example, uh, there was a report by the Justice Policy Institute a couple of years ago. We were putting in jail more of our population than any of the uh, twenty largest cities. Uh, you know, with jails. Um, a couple of summers ago, um, the uh, ACLU, the NAACP, brought a lawsuit against. Um, when uh, Governor O'Malley was mayor of the city for having arrested more people during the summer than any other city, including for all sorts of alleged uh, nuisance crimes. Uh, at one point, there were so many people being arrested that even the prosecutors were dropping at least a third of them and not following up on them because they didn't, um, they weren't, they weren't substantiated by any kind of evidence. So, I think what that what that shows is that if you're in a situation where you are blocked from opportunity, then this idea that um, an individual can make all the difference by simply using some government resources well um, is, is, is just not the case. Uh, what we really have to do is look at some of the underlying issues. Um, now, with the Affordable Care Act, people can have access, for example, to mental health care and drug addiction treatment. But we know that many people have been incarcerated. We did a study a few years back to look and see what was happening to people who were being let out of prison with absolutely no kind of support services. Very, very high number of those people ended up homeless. Right. So those are, that's an example of a practice. I mean, it, it, it's not that that individual didn't take care. It's that that individual maybe should never have been incarcerated in the first place because they have an underlying disease of mental health or addiction, right. we're never able to get insurance like many so of the more affluent um, counterparts, including, a, a, you know, a great majority of people who are 
uh, have right. not experienced other kinds of discrimination. So that's the kind of systemic right. barriers we have to exactly. look at. Um, we actually have a caller on the line. We have Jay from Harlem who would like to let his voice be heard. Jay, are you there? Yes, I am, and I appreciate you taking my call. Now, I don't want to allow myself to try and remember people's names or uh, even your guests. I'll just go right into the subject. Um, I appreciate your guests for uh, being very open about uh, the problem, and it is systemic. Uh, But I think that there's one more um, portion that none of us are speaking about, and that uh, situation that uh, I would like to make a presentation about is the uh, the fact of the Homeland Security Act. Uh, we all agree that um, our nation was terrorized, and New York to include uh, the uh, the main city that we call uh, the uh, center or the you know the the brunt of the uh, terrorists. Uh, so the Homeland Security Act was. Um, put into place. Uh, I accommodate people who think that we needed Homeland Security. Just like um, when we think of these arrests, uh, like your guess is uh, making the statement about, uh, the more arrests, uh, in my view, the more people have a reason to have a job. So, of course, if your main uh, energy is to uh, keep a job, then you shoot up the arrest rate. But the more significant uh, portion is that these people come out now with a criminal record and they're not allowed to vote. So that when we speak about voting rights and uh, whether it's uh, black crime or white crime, all of these things, all of these things go out the window because what we're actually speaking about is not class, it's not race, it's not any of those things. It's like your guest pronounced. This is an apparatus that was put in place, not right. for control, but for power. Exactly. Jay, thank you. Terrorism. Exactly. That's thank you. Terrorism. Thank you so much for that comment. Yes. I want to give um, Diana a chance to respond to that very insightful and important point that you just made. Diana? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Brian Stevenson, uh, whom many of you uh, may know, he's the sort of foremost um, uh, advocates who get rid of the death penalty, but has expanded his work, just came out with a book called Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. And I, I should say he's also on the National Board of Open Society Foundation. He talks often uh, when talking about the Homeland Security Act about how terrorism is certainly nothing new on, uh, on you know, in our territory. And that if we look at our own history, um, and the experience of African Americans, we will see many, many examples of terrorism and, of course, um, very distinct efforts uh, for control. So I certainly would recommend his most recent book and some of his other uh, writing, if, if anyone has any doubt about the examples. And one of the, in addition to the voting and all the restrictions that have recently popped up in states to restrict voting, um, the other thing, of course, is simply the mass incarceration. Uh, we have so many people incarcerated. Uh, even in Baltimore, if you look at the jail, the majority of people being held in that jail have not even been convicted. They're literally pending trial. And we have a money bail system, which, including for people who were just arrested, where the bail being asked for is very, very high. And it's a business. Right. It's a business that needs to end. Because it's not based on the two things that are legitimate when someone's in jail, which is to ask, are they a public safety risk 
or may they abscond and not show up for their trial. Right. And if the answer is no to that, then money should not be the reason why we're holding people. It shouldn't be. Absolutely. And I know we have more people in prisons and incarcerated than ever before. And there's a higher rate of prison violence than ever before. Um, and the recidivism rate, you know, is astronomical. So it's just perpetuating this bigger issue. Um, a note about about terrorism, um, something that... Um, I found out about this week was the NYPD uh, terrorism, anti-terrorism unit was actually brought out to the protests, um, you know, with the protesters standing together in solidarity um, with those in Baltimore to monitor protester activity and sort of, you know, lend a hand, I guess, if need be. And I thought that this was really... I don't know. It was really scary um, and sort of showed how the city views these protests as, as you know, protesters taking part in the solidarity movement as terrorists. I mean, I don't know sort of what to think of that, but it was really disheartening. What do you, what do you, what would you say about that? I would say that um, just here in Baltimore region, let alone across the country, we have a huge job ahead of us to change the narrative. I, in other words, uh, there are people who took in uh, this whole experience and fixated on uh, the looting and the destruction that occurred, and really have not understood the decades-long um, discrimination and undercutting of opportunity that's, that's happened that has resulted in completely broken relationships between the police and the community. Right. And so we really have to do, we have to, we have to really pay attention to that. We have to work together uh, to really change people's understanding, to really reframe what the issue is. Uh, because I think that, um, you know, your example with, you know, there's a lot of other monitors out there, too, of course, also making sure uh, that the uh, police response to ordinary citizens and residents is appropriate. So there are a lot of people who have obviously volunteered their time, including the sort of legal observers, people who are going to be helping at the jail, people who are going to be helping with these bail hearings, uh, and so on. But I, I don't think we, especially with, obviously, some of the portrayals on the media, and even just because of segregation, there's a lack of understanding of the kind of advantage that a lot of um, white people have experienced yeah. uh, and over the years. I mean, uh, you know, there's good examples of that, just the way uh, mortgages work. Uh, that was something that benefited a lot of uh, of the white population, allowing them to develop wealth. That was something that largely wasn't available uh, to African-American population. So I think it's really important for people to understand the policies that have been in place that have both helped certain populations and disadvantaged Right. Um, we actually have Omar from Harlem on the line who would like to let his voice be heard. Omar, are you there? Yes, thank you so much. And uh, to your guest, uh, you know, this is uh, this is very depressing uh, to me to even have to talk about this subject because I keep uh, hearing the same thing over and over and over. You can say over for the next 10 years if you want to. You know, back in the 60s, and I'm a product of the 60s, I lived in different countries, and I saw the way African-Americans are treated uh, in other countries. In many of the countries, we're put on a pedestal. And because because of our chutzpah, if you will, for lack of better terminology, when you come back here, and uh, it seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Uh, I, I uh, was uh, a respecter of a gentleman by the name of Elijah Muhammad. He was a man who had a third-grade education, and his whole, uh, his whole thing was do for self. Make your own jobs. They own restaurants. They own their own businesses. They own uh, hotels, farmland, etc., etc., etc. And the government was down on them 24-7. And a lot of these young people... They're products of their environment. We know that. But you have the computer age now. People can get on the computer. They make their own jobs. I have family members making a very, very decent living, doing computer work, giving back to the community, paying their taxes also, by the way. So what I'm saying is it's not a lack of jobs. A lot of times it's a lack of the gumption. It's a lack of the chutzpah. We all grew up uh, in in a system where there was segregation and, and you talk about terrorism. I did a lot of work with the Red Power Movement. If you think people were terrorized, just just go up to one of those Indian reservations when you have mm-hmm. time and see the way the brothers and sisters are living as we speak. Right. As right. we speak. Right. That's, Thank that's you so terrible. much for that, I Omar. Wanna, I want to follow up to that point. Um, and certainly this this idea of, you know, Internet access and technology um, as this new wave of people, you know, building business and stimulating our economy is certainly I, I think that's a really good point to bring up. However, if you look at the technology industry, um, it's predominantly run by white males. Um, it, you know, no women, very few. Oh, that's not true. There's women, but compared to the amount of men in the technology industry, and, there's and, and not as very few minorities. people of color who don't have access to maybe the same kinds of computers and technology that these you know, and more the affluent educational know-how. Exactly. So that's a huge problem in and of itself that we have to address is how are we going to increase, um, you know, access to this technology to many different groups of people? Right. Um, <coughs> unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up. But I want to give, again, our very special guest some time to tell everyone how they can reach out to um, her as well as her organization and get more involved, especially if they live in Baltimore. Uh, uh, well, well, thank you very much. Um, you know, people could certainly look at our website, which is uh, www.audaciousideas.org. Uh, and we would be uh, happy to have a for you all to get information there. Another group um, is uh, Baltimore United for Change, and that has very impressive youth leaders, uh, groups coming together, the Algebra Project, Leaders for a Beautiful Struggle, Casa de Maryland, um, and many others. This is a very impressive group of of young people who are well-organized, well-informed, and have a policy agenda. They're dealing with some of the immediate needs, but they have a long-term systemic policy agenda. And I think what's going to be required for all of us is the kind of whisper, perhaps, that um, the last caller mentioned, that Mm -hmm. we need to do advocacy. We need to do advocacy that's sustained, that talks about the underlying causes. Education is a universal right, and we have to make sure that it's high quality so every student, in fact, could have the preparation to take a technology job. Definitely, definitely. Or to be an entrepreneur. So thank you very much for uh, focusing on this topic. It's, it's tremendously important. And unfortunately, Baltimore is just typical of other cities where we have got to repair 
uh, the police community relations, but we also have to insist on police accountability. Yes. Thank you so much again, Diana Morris from the Open Society Institute. That was great. Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy that Diana brought up the idea of education. Um, And certainly it should be a right, right? This is not, and unfortunately it's not, right? There's inadequate education. Um, It's certainly not you know, equal and quality education across the board for all citizens. And that's something that we really need to work to repair. Um, And that will, you know, that combined with police reform um, and holding our police officers accountable and making sure that they can't, you know, they, they don't have any, in many of these cases, reverence for certain human life and for certain bodies that they're you know supposed to be protecting and serving. They just don't. And so that's where we get into this issue. And, you know, we, as activists are sort of feeling disenfranchised because we thought, okay, well, you know, after um, we caught acts of this, you know, like this on camera, there's going to be some change, but there hasn't. We've seen these acts be repeated by police officers across the country over and over and over again. So we need to, you know, certainly pair this improvement of the education system with an overhaul of our police Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, I just wanted to note something and it goes back to the theme of education and equal education. Brown versus Board of Ed was decided in 1954. And yet we still have some of the most segregated school systems, especially in inner cities like New York City, like Baltimore. Then, you know, and, and remember, it's 2015. So it's been, you know, over 30 years since Brown versus Board of Education was decided. And yet we still see the systemic problem within education, as well as obviously within police accounts. Accountability um, and within civil rights issues. Um, you know, there's something else that I wanted to say, which is as this goes back to the theme that I talk about a lot, which is that everything is related to everything else. That, you know, lack of jobs, lack of education, lack of economic opportunity leads to situations where people find that they have no other outlets. So that ends up putting them in uh, just a worse position to start with. And unless, and if we want to address the issues with the criminal justice system, we, and we should, and we have to, uh, but we also have to address the underlying issues of poverty and education, et cetera. Um, You know, final note on that is somebody throughout the segment, I don't know who it was, mentioned The Wire. And Selena and I had had a conversation about The Wire off air on Thursday night. And Stanley had made a mention that, like, that's the only thing that, like, white people care about when it comes to Baltimore, which is like, oh, they're, like, so into The Wire. Um, uh, And and that's, like, a legitimate point. And it brings me back to something that I started the segment, which is that justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as out outraged as those who are and that's Ben Franklin and that's what it comes down to is like you can't just watch The Wire and be like oh this is a great show like you know entertainment value if you're one of the white people that's watching The Wire and getting great entertainment value out of it remember that that's based on not necessarily true events but it's based on the real Baltimore and the real background of how Baltimore is and if you think that's just entertainment like you need to look at the deeper issues you need to look at yourself and say I have to be affected by this I can't just take this as entertainment value I have to think like oh wait, these things are really going on in Baltimore. How? What can I do right. if I really care about this issue and I really think this is horrible? What can I do to better my community, to better the community of Baltimore and to better our country as a whole? Right. And you know, thank you so much for that, Alyssa. There is something that we all can do. And number one, it's paying attention, being involved, talking about it at work, on social media, joining the protest movement. Again, um, besides 
the outrage that's been going on nationally and the fact that that outrage helped lead to the um, indictment of these police officers. It's also been holding media accountable. I heard on MSNB, an MSNBC host, her name is Joy Reid, she said it herself that she's been following the commentary that she, and the feedback she gets from her coverage on the ground in Baltimore. And she said that a lot of people have been complaining, saying that, you know, we're focusing on the violence and we're focusing on the looting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to make sure that we're giving you what you want. And the fact is, when we speak out and we let our voices be heard, saying that it's wrong for these police officers to just get a slap on the wrist and it's wrong for media to continue to cover it in this very sensational way that only that doesn't help the problem. When we say this and we come together and we make our voices heard, then it does actually lead to change and it has been leading to change. And we'll continue to follow this story again. An indictment is not a verdict. So we'll, we'll continue to follow this and we'll see if those police officers will indeed be held accountable. Stay tuned. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM Radio. Again, my name is Selena Hill. And if you're watching us on Ustream and wondering where Stanley is, I am too. He's I'm not on the bike I'm, tour. I'm <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Engineering is just too much for me, guys. Like, I just need to stick to my seat and talk and give commentary and host the segments. But I like this seat. I know. I think Alyssa's getting a little too comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have Alyssa here. We have Jackie Cohen here. Um, and it's time for the news roundup. Um, I wanted to actually bring in this story. Well, guys, if you guys want to contribute, again, the number is 212-650-6903. You can call us up. You can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. You can also leave comments at Politically Preposterous, which is Alyssa's personal. Well, not personal. It's her fan it's her fan page. Yeah, it's the fan page. And it has like 40,000 it's fans. The, it's, the okay. it's the debate community. Yeah, that that's that's what it is. So if you have a story that made you laugh, cry, very upset, um, made you want to tweet or just delete your Twitter account, you can call <laughs> us up. So after those. Right. I actually wanted to start off talking about how uh, Bernie Sanders has finally announced that he is running in the 2016 presidential race. I was ecstatic. Um, obviously, we're not going to get Elizabeth Warren, but I'll take Bernie. Um, he has been a champion for labor rights, workers rights um, against TPP, which we talked about in depth. Mm -hmm. And this is huge, massive trade bill that would basically hurt us in every possible way. Um, he's been an advocate for this his entire career in Congress. I think he's been in Congress for over a decade and he's running for president we know he's an independent but he does caucus with the democrats and i think that when i first found out i was like okay he's not going to win necessarily but at least we'll have someone to hold hillary clinton more accountable you know she's very moderate and her politics at times you know she'll veer off to the left but you know we, we sort of know how she is um based on her um her experiences and i think that if you have this strong left progressive voice it will do this race so much good i agree i think it's gonna force hillary to really have to pick her her uh, stance and you know potentially even move her slightly to the left although i i think that I don't know how that's going to play in the general. However, I will say, and I wanted to note about Bernie, in 24 hours after he announced that he was running for president, he raised more than $1.5 million, and he actually raised more money than any Republican. Right. Any any of those people in the clown car, how many of them are there now? There's like Rubio, and there's Paul. I can't even keep track of how many people who are never going to be president are 
in that car. But yeah, he outraised all of them within nice. the first 24 hours of right. fundraising. So I need to give some money. I'm a little, I'm a little worried. I'm a little skeptical. I'm, Why? I feel like I'm so jaded this election cycle. Really? It, it's kind of making me sad. But I'm a little worried because I'm afraid that he, you know, that Hillary's going to get the nomination, right? And then we're going to have Sanders to the left of her. And I'm a very liberal progressive, right? And so I definitely find myself lining up with him more. However, I'm worried that he's going to come off to voters and to the public as so liberal and so to the left that people are like, oh, well, good that Hillary's more moderate because she is a lot more moderate. Right. And so I'm, I'm afraid that he's going to be used as sort of this tools to say, oh, it could be so much. We could be so much more liberal. And well, that's an interesting point, because Vox did a study on that where they asked registered Democrats, um, would you want somebody of the political ideology of Hillary or would you want somebody further to the left? And actually, when they polled a huge group of Democrats, overwhelmingly, Democrats actually want somebody who is as moderate or even maybe more to the right well, of we, Hillary, we saw not this happen, to the left. We saw this happen with the Tea Party, right, where very few people saw themselves aligning necessarily with the Tea Party. However, the, the you know, birth of the Tea Party brought about m- many more conservatives, right, who found themselves saying, OK, we're not that far to... Well, maybe that's making my point a good point. Actually, um, never mind. <laughs> we, we actually have on the line with us one of our favorite callers. We have Miss Deborah who wanted to give a comment. You want to um, let your voice be heard, Miss Deborah? Hi, ladies. You know, I was online yesterday and I was looking at some companies. Um, I won't mention the companies, but uh, they're very. People use a lot of. We buy a lot of shoes, okay, mm-hmm. so to speak, and a lot of. Clothes. Young people do too, and I was looking at job opportunities, and all of the job opportunities are in Asia. Every job opportunity, every last one of them. And then I received some mail yesterday about, you know, sending a card back to Washington D.C. because we need your help, you know, to stop TPP, and we really do need help because I, I, I don't. To me, that would be the linchpin right there for me. I would ask them what they thought about TPP. Oh yes. No, this no. It's really. If you saw that, you wouldn't even think we were in America. Mm. Right. Okay. I'm just. I'm just because I don't want. You know, I don't want to mention. You know, companies. But it was. It was. It was really. And and there was someone there who was maybe in his teens, and he was sitting next to me, and I pointed it out to him. And he was like, really, he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. And I said, but it's good information. It's good to know so that when you, you know, get ready to vote, because it's going to be his first time, you know, you'll have some understanding of why or what you might want. But it was it was strange. There, there, there was nothing there. Mm. And the fact that we utilize so much of these, this, this, this clothing and these shoes, you know, you would think that, you know, there was something there. So I, I really, you know, right. I hope that they put everybody's feet to the fire for that. Thank you so much for calling in and leaving that comment, um, Ms. Deborah, with us. Guys, if you want more information about the TPP trade deal, we actually did a full segment last week, and you can find it on our podcast. If you subscribe via iTunes, it's LYVBH Radio. You can also hit us up and find it on our website, LYVBH.com. But, you know, Ms. Deborah makes a great point, and I just wanted to add, even this last week, Barack Obama, our president, doubled down despite the controversy, despite how many people 
people from the left, the people that have supported him from day one, and, and even the high-profile Democrats like Senny, um, Senator Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, despite the fact that they all have been calling out and saying that this deal is horrible and it's going to send more jobs to, to third-world countries and places like um, Asia, and it's going to, in effect, that's going to hurt us here in America. The president doubled down. He actually did a full interview with the Wall Street Journal on Monday, and he was like, what they're saying is not true, and we need this in order to not cede economic power to China. We don't want them to write the rules. And that's not necessarily the truth of the matter. Um, again, guys, I, I would c- encourage everyone to not only check out our segment on our website, but send your congressperson an email. I did it. I think I did it once or maybe even twice last week, yeah. but I sent these emails um, and you can do that at stopfasttrack.com. They set it up so easily. If you go to stopfasttrack.com, then you can just like press a, like one or two buttons and they send the email for you um, automatically. And it's basically saying that you don't want this legislation to be fast, to be passed very quickly and very quietly by Congress in an up or down vote. And you do not want TPP to pass in general. I agree. So I encourage that. I agree. Uh, you know, shifting gears a little bit. Speaking of other scandalous things, um, I don't know if you heard, but there's been a follow-up in the Bridgegate case, which yes. is, uh, if you don't remember, that um, Fort Lee got backed up with traffic for days and days and days because apparently um, they were conducting a traffic study, quote-unquote, but in reality, nobody was conducting a traffic study, and now it has come out. Um, this guy, David Wildstein, he actually has pled guilty to engaging in a conspiracy with a, another gentleman, Bill Baroni, who used to run the Port Authority, and Bridget Ann Kelly, who was Chris Christie's chief of staff. Um, Of course, David Wildstein has become a government witness, and he is saying that he's going to testify against Bill Baroni and Bridget Ann Kelly, and he's going to basically lay it out there that they um, had this elaborate plan to get back at the mayor of Fort Lay for not endorsing Chris Christie, Mm -hmm. and so they decided to conduct this fake traffic study, um, which, uh, you know, in fact, the indictment goes as far as to say is they could potentially have created a problem with national security, because the, uh, the George Washington Bridge, if you don't know, that's the most one of the most traffic bridges in the country every single day and anything from like an emergency vehicle not being able to get over it um, goods and services not being able to pass through all because these three people um, alleged well David Wildstein pled guilty the other two allegedly concocted this elaborate scheme and somebody had said well how is this going to play you know for Chris Christie and you know Chris Christie tweeted of course as you know I have not been indicted you know you know I've said all along I have not involved but David Wildstein is saying like no 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 stuff more stuff's going to come out I mean there's I mean in my opinion this is my opinion there's no way that Chris Christie did not know about this of course and if he didn't that makes him a worse leader right exactly I mean and he prides himself on being this tough guy when he was a prosecutor you know he asked all the questions and he was you know this aggressive um interrogator and so the fact that he claims that he kind of asked if anything was going on and he was told no and he was like okay that's all i need to know means that he totally knew yeah in my opinion no no he, he's it and i mean i don't know he's still running for president right yeah well, well he hasn't I don't announced think he hasn't announced, announced it okay Ugh. Well, we'll see. We'll continue to follow that. He spent more time in Iowa than he spends in New Jersey. Apparently, his his ratings in New Jersey are like going down, 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 all the way downhill. And I'm sure you heard about the the crating of the pigs issue that he ended up. No, this was a few months back. There was a bill. It had bipartisan support. It had 98 percent of support uh, by. 
constituents in New Jersey. It was a bill in Jersey about not crating oh, yes. animals yeah, yeah, in yeah. a certain way, mm-hmm. and he voted against it. And everybody who knows anything about it said, well, how could he vote against it if everybody in his state supported it? And the fact is, people in Iowa, the farmers' right. associations, don't support oh, that bill. So, so you know, wow. nothing like voting in favor of the constituents oh of another God. state that you don't even represent in order to pander to potential political mm-hmm. constituents for the election instead of voting in favor of your the own constituents. Chris Christie is the worst. The worst. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if you guys were out on Friday, but it was May Day, and there were a number of uh, protests all across the country and across the world. It's also known as International Workers Day. Um, and some of the things that people have been protesting is a fight for um, minimum wage to increase to $15. A number of people came out and said it's time to pass President Obama's executive action on immigration, which we know would um, protect up to 5 million undocumented residents from being deported. Um, and then oh, then you also had people from the Black Lives Movement coming out and who were protesting. And I know Alyssa was on the ground. I was on the ground. So, um, what, so how was that? How was yeah, that? So I was at the New York City May Day March. Um, it a May Day March happens every year. It's mm-hmm. a permanent march. And normally, as Selena pointed out, it highlights economic issues uh, such as um immigration issues and detentions. Uh, It talks about um, wages, wage theft, all kinds of economic issues uh, that are going on. Um, But this year, yes, uh, especially in New York City, the focus was very much centered on Freddie Gray. People were holding signs that said May Day for Freddie Gray. You saw a lot of Black Lives Matter, Eric Garner signs. Um, It was, uh, there was, from what I understand, because it was permitted, uh, there was very little arrests, which was good. Um, But the police did kind of couch us in into this route like they they couched us in into barricades that were very narrow they made us walk around you know obviously this was the the route that the march was supposed to take but they didn't give us the whole street they like kept the streets open and narrowed it off and ultimately the rally ended at Foley Square there was a lot of different speeches a lot of them were focused on economic issues but a whole lot of them were focused on civil rights issues and about getting justice for Freddie Gray and for other people who have killed by the police and about a police accountability um, and I did hear after I left and after the march ended, a group of people did try and uh, return to Union Square by trying to take the streets. And, and there was a f- several arrests made. But ultimately, it was nothing like we had seen the two right. nights prior where I think 164 people yeah. were arrested oh, yeah. um, in New York City. Yeah, in New York City. Right. Um, I mean, and that was for rioting, looting. Like, what were they being arrested for? They were essentially being arrested for for unpermitted march. I yeah. mean, what? Uh, oh, unlike, they lit something on fire. Unlike no. the May Day thing, which people actually sought a permit. And so, like, you know, this was another one of these... It wasn't spontaneous. I mean, it was planned through social media, but they did not obtain a proper permit. And However, then they, right. people were being pulled into the... And this has happened through March during the winter, but definitely more so this past week where people were being pulled off of the sidewalk into the street and then arrested. Yeah, oh I my heard God. that the police were very, very aggressive um, during that March that night. I mean, they brought um, out the NYPD anti-terrorist unit. You know, like that's that was the mentality that the cops went into this with. They just know how to make things worse. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we're, pr- we're protesting against anti-police and the militization of police and anti-police brutality. And then bring out the tank and the right. l like, 
right, in the L rag. Yeah, yeah, just give us something to tweet about, right? I think that's all that's out. But I do want to actually end the segment on a very positive note. Good. Something good happened, and it was in North Carolina. Hooray. So um, this homeless person, they actually, this ho- it was, I don't know if it was male or female, so they went to a church, and they left this really touching donation. It was a small and modest donation, but it touched a lot of, a lot of hearts. They left 18 cents along with a note that said, Please don't be mad. I don't have much. I'm homeless. God bless. And after this person left this note in the offering, um, the pastor put it on the Facebook page. And you should see the outpouring of, of community support and love for this person who thought that for some reason people would be mad for them giving, you know, probably all that they had in their pockets. And like so many people are trying to find that person to help them. So, I mean, it was really good. Like if you read the note, yeah. like it's handwritten on this white envelope. It's in the offering place and like it was just really touching and if you know who wrote that note i know you said they're trying to find this person because they want to give them help well if you're listening to our show and you know (laughs) if you happen to know who wrote this note and left it at this church uh, maybe you should contact us and then we'll see if we can get in touch with a pastor down there so we can see if we can get this person some help on that note we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we'll be talking with colette martin from moms demand action about gun control in america Race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. This is Jackie Cohen. I am here with Alyssa Fuchs and Selena Hill. Um, If you want to call in to our show, we encourage that you do. You can call the number 212-650-6903. Yes, yes, yes. Please do. And also tweet tweet us. us. Yes, be heard <laughs> underscore radio. Twinsies. Or you can leave a comment on Politically Preposterous. Or you can just come say hi. I don't Definitely. Yeah, hey. All <laughs> right, guys, we're back. And again, Stanley Fritz is not here, but he'll be back more oh, than likely. Good. As long as he's not hungover next Sunday, he'll be back here sitting in this seat. Okay, guys? So a um, little FYI. We're actually going to talk about gun control and gun regu- gun regulation um, for this part of the show, and we have a very special guest in the studio, which I will, who I will introduce in just a moment. So, um, do you guys remember that really nice weekend in April? It was like 75 to 80 degrees here in New York City. Like, I finally didn't have to wear a jacket, and I had like so much fun. It was a Saturday, and then the Sunday was really nice. And you know, for the most part, I think most of us really enjoyed the weekend. However, that same weekend, which happened to be from Friday. Um, April 17th to Sunday, April 20th, there were 21 shootings. Well, there were um, 21 people were shot and two people were actually killed from gun violence right here in New York City um, here. It's just one weekend and it's it's pretty mind blowing. But then again, I'm like, this happens all the time and it's not even headlining news. Right. Right. Um, and I remember we talked about guns so much right after Sandy Hook. Right. And right after the massacre in um, Colorado, when we had the Dark Knight shooting. And we talked Gabby about Giffords it. was killed. Uh, well, not shot, killed, uh, shot, shot in the head. Um, no, and point. other people were killed. Exactly. And it's like when we have that type of gun violence, it's uh, it's headlining news. Right. It's 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 the central thing in national discourse but when people who are majorly black and brown are continually shot 
in one like area or in one short period of time, it's not really news anymore because it's just like, okay, well, that area is played by plagued by gangs or, you know, they have a lot of guns here. But today we want to talk about we want to go a little deeper and talk about how the fact how are these guns even getting into the hands of some of these criminals? Right. It, they're being sold on the black market, but they're not creating. They're not manufacturing the guns. They're coming from somewhere and they're coming from other states like Virginia, um, in which they have such these lax laws when it comes to when it comes to guns you can buy a gun no matter what your background is no matter no matter what it is that um you know no matter your training you can get this gun and then it's sold on the black market here um i know Alyssa wanted to chime in quickly yeah, you know i just wanted to add to that you said coming up there's so many guns coming up from up that line that there's even a name for i-95 it's known as the iron pipeline and that is because it is one of the most traffic routes to bring guns that are initially sold legally uh, usually usually to what we'll call a straw purchaser, somebody who can legally go and buy that gun, who then turns around and brings that gun um, through the iron pipeline up I-95 from the south to the north and then resells that gun to somebody who could not have purchased that gun. Exactly. And that's what's been going on for decades. I want to introduce our very special guest. Like, I'm so, like, flustered. So, please, if I, if I mispronounce your name. <laughs> You're doing great. But it's it's Corlette Martin. She is from Astoria, Queens. So, Yay! shout out to Queens. Shout um, out to Astoria. <laughs> um, she is a, a que- uh, actually a New York native. She's a mom. She has a six-year-old child. She actually began volunteering with a number of gun violence prevention groups in the days following Sandy Hook. And that was, again, December 2012. Um, she also supported supports common sense policies that will keep guns out of the wrong hands. But correct me if I'm wrong, you're also a gun owner. Correct. Right. And she's here in the studio with us. Um, Corlette, I just want to start off just getting some of your feedback. And the fact that you own a gun, that's really unique because I think that when we hear a lot of people on the left talking about gun regulation and talking about gun control, we speak about it from a, from a, a different perspective. Like I've never shot a gun. I'm not around guns. I don't live in a, in a region where hunting is a big part of my life and I can and that's the that's the lens that I speak from where you have other people in other towns and they're like well you know I grew up shooting guns this was something that was that was fun for me um and this is something I do um for recreation and why would we want to put a band on and limit it so I think that you have that very unique perspective because you can talk from both areas what what would you say about what's going on when it comes to gun violence Boy, <laughs> where to start? Where right? Where, where would yeah. you start? How long do we have? <laughs> no, it, is, it is absolutely um, time to have this conversation, and I'm glad that two years after Sandy Hook, I'm here and we're talking about it. That makes me very hopeful and very optimistic because heretofore it's been the kind of situation where you have a Columbine, you have Gabby Giffords, you have Aurora. The nation is horrified, and everybody's screaming about what's wrong and the NRA is telling you more guns are going to solve this problem and and it's it's a moment in time and it passes and so today we're here you know with that weekend recently in April with 21 New Yorkers shot we have a cop in a hospital clinging to life shot by an ex-con with a gun right yesterday um we have a very bad situation going on even though we're in a state and a city that have reasonable gun laws that have pretty strong gun laws, that have gun laws that the NRA hates. And here we are in a city of 8 million people, and our murder rate is lower than some cities with a tenth of our population. Mm. Right. And that is a function of 
geography. You know, you spoke about the iron pipeline. What happens is you've got this corridor from Miami to Maine, right? So you've got the perfect route to take advantage of lax gun laws in the southern states. In particular, you look at Florida, North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia, as you mentioned. Um, those are probably the five biggest offenders in terms of loose gun laws, where you can literally walk into a gun show on a Saturday or a Sunday, show nothing in terms of permits to own. They're not required. Background check, not required. Mm. Um, you can show your ID for the state, a driver's license, and walk away with virtually any gun you want from a private sale. Mm. Federal firearms licensed dealers, of course, have to run a NICS check, have to do a background check. But when the workaround is so easy, it's the equivalent of going to the airport and having a line that checks, you know, for your ID and a line that says, let's just wing it. Right. right. So, <laughs> and that doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't. I've said it's the equivalent to me as a mom of putting my kid in a daycare where only 60% of the staff are checked. Right. right. Yeah, we, we <laughs> just wouldn't do, do that. No, because right. it, it makes absolutely no sense. Well, it seems like it, as far as our gun policy, we're only as strong as our weakest link, right? Correct. Where no matter how stringent Correct. our gun policies are in New York, you know, if there's lax policies elsewhere. That's where if you want a gun, you'll figure out how to get a gun. Um, that's right. You're not going to, you know, go through the proper channels if you know that you, there's an easier way. I mean, that's just how it works. That's right. And you'll find cities like New York, but not just New York, you know, lots of other places, too, are literally flooded with guns that come from states that have right. those laws where right. gun trafficking isn't even a crime. It's not a crime at the federal level. Wow. Does wow. that make sense? No. I did not know that. No, it doesn't make sense. It, the penalties are laughable. The penalties are like paper violations. But yet if you compare so, that to uh, the penalties <coughs> for being a felon in possession of a gun, uh, which you now fall under the federal mandatory minimum, which are permissive, not mandatory, but you're still under the federal sentencing guidelines and then the penalties become extraordinary. So if you're an individual right. who is a felon, who is now in possession of a gun, then you can go to, you'll go to jail for a very, very, very long time. Um, and yet, and some of these people, let's remind you, are not violent felons. Some of these are right. people who have felonies for, say, marijuana, which yes. we actually should say could say, you know, that's somebody who maybe should be able to get their gun rights reinstored. Um, that penalty is so exorbitant, and yet there's n very little penalties, as you point out, for gun traffickers. Yeah, it's a very strange right. situation that we have going on in this country. And I come from you know, a family of gun owners. My dad was a gun owner. My dad was shooting rabbits with a slingshot when he was five, <laughs> you know, in Ireland. That's mm -hmm. where he's from. So there were guns around. There were shotguns. He lived on a farm. He came to this country. He's a veteran, served in the army. We had a house upstate in the Catskills, you know, where there was always plinking going on in the backyard. Right. And so it's not a function of being anti-gun or afraid of guns. And, you know, I think we need to sort of take back that conversation because there right. are plenty of gun owners out there like me who want universal background checks. You yeah. know, to, to what, what country is this where you can walk into a gun show and buy a gun? find a group on Facebook and meet up with a guy in the Piggly, Piggly Wiggly parking <laughs> lot. And I'm not kidding you. That is not 
hyperbole. That is how these things happen. It, you it can is. buy a gun out of a trunk and post about it on Facebook and no laws are being broken. It's this weird don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah. You're supposed to look at the dude who meets you and know whether he's a felon That's or not. Terrifying. And the easiest way to not know to keep everybody out of trouble is just don't ask. Right. Right. Guys, right. If you're just tuning in again, we have in studio with us Colette Martin. She is a gun well, gun control advocate. Can I can I can I say it like that? But she also owns a gun. And we're talking about gun regulation here. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is the argument you I've constantly hear about people who are you know very pro-gun and they'll say things like well this is why you should have looser laws in places like new york city and places like chicago Mm -hmm. because you guys have the most gun violence obviously your laws aren't working and to me that 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 argument is like bizarre but what do you say to that what i say to that is faulty premise faulty conclusion because the the fact of the matter is we don't we were speaking at the break. New York has 8 million people and something like 330 gun murders took place within. Now, is that tragic? Absolutely. That, that's, that's a ridiculous number. That's more than, you know, most countries in the world experience. Yeah. It's a, and we shouldn't be blasé about it. However, New York and Chicago, mm-hmm. New York State is actually the third lowest in this country in terms of gun violence. So that includes statewide. When you compare city to city, New York isn't even in the top 10 as far as the rate of gun violence, that is by population, which is the correct way to measure this, really. Um, Chicago is somewhere low, like eighth out of the top 10. You have to look at cities like Detroit, cities like Knoxville, cities like Memphis and Birmingham. There are pockets of gun violence in this nation that make us look truly like a nation at war, where the rate of gun violence is so much higher than what it is here in New York. Our relatively low level of gun violence is a function of both good legislation, but also we we are geographically gifted right. in a way because so we're, we're surrounded by states that have reasonable common sense gun laws right. it does make it harder right it just feels to me like we're just sitting around waiting for the next mass shooting to oh, happen yeah. uh, Definitely. and it also uh. feels like it's like a, a, a man well one we don't talk about these shootings that are going on in all these right. different cities with guns that you know as we just said are coming into the cities because of lax gun laws but you know it's like every time we have a big mass shooting and then everybody starts talking about gun laws and then then there's this immediate pushback from the NRA, um, mm-hmm. and then and then it fizzles out. It kind of like peters out, and then nobody's talking about it. And then we're just like I said, sitting around waiting for the mass shooting to happen. And we know that statistically, something like 92 percent of people in this country, gun owners and non-gun owners, support a federal universal background check law. Yet we it can't get passed through Congress. Why is that? Well, that's right. And, and, you know, that speaks directly to the power of the NRA, who you mentioned. And what we need to do as concerned citizens, as gun owners, in my opinion, is we need to question that. We need to wonder why a group that claims 5 million membership, now that makes them one of the strongest lobbying outfits out there. However, there's some debate as to whether that number is correct and how many of those are alive. Um, <laughs> right. You know, because they do things like leave people oh, on wow. the membership rolls 20 years after they die. and <laughs> Just to build their numbers? Their Absolutely. It's wow. padded. But that's all about advertising revenue and circulation on their magazines. Okay. Um, however, there are somewhere upwards or around 80 million gun owners in this country. 
five million of whom on a good day belong to the NRA. So we have to really question, where does this imbalance of power come from? Where does their influence come from? Because it certainly doesn't come from the gun-owning Americans at large who have, en masse, rejected the NRA, right? Why mm -hmm. isn't their membership somewhere at 70 million, 75 million? It, it works out to about 15% or less of legal gun owners who are actual members of the NRA. And wow. even among NRA members, there is tremendous dissent with this extremist rhetoric that comes out of them in the wake of every mass shooting mm. and every study that's done on gun violence. Right. Um, because, you know, their job is not to represent me as an American gun owner. Their job is to represent Smith & Wesson. The gun mm. manufacturers. <laughs> right. And right. I think Special that there's, there's not even an attempt to cover that anymore where there used to be. Right. Um, so I think that we need to just hold our legislators responsible. N no, we definitely do. Um, on that note, we're actually going to take a quick break, but we'll be sure. back talking more about, again, the gun debate here in America and what we need to do to stop gun violence. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We are back, turning up here in the studio at Let Your Voice Be Heard. Again, this is WATR 90.3 FM. My name is Selena Hill. I'm with Jackie Cohen, Alyssa Fuchs, and our very special guest, Colette Martin, who is here speaking to us about um, gun regulation and gun violence. And I know Jackie had a comment. Yeah, so I have a comment and a question. So I, I like the that you brought up this fact that, you know, upstate in New York specifically, there's very different cultural norms associated with guns where there's sure. upstate. You know, I, I was telling you before, my best friend grew up upstate New York. Um, her dad's a big hunter. I mean, all, everything you eat on their table has been grown by them or hunted fish by them. Um, and when we were moving to the city, she was my roommate for a while. Her dad said, you know, I'd feel a lot more comfortable with you guys having a gun, you know, just to protect yourselves, which we know nothing about guns. So it would have been a disaster. And then, uh, you know, my parents who grew up in New York City, specifically like my mother who grew up in the Bronx, mm -hmm. was like, I don't feel safer with you having a gun. I think that would be probably a bad idea for you to me yeah. specifically. I don't think I would know the first thing about owning a gun. I would have to know probably. a lot more about it. it, it yeah. Yeah. And, and I would have to agree with your mom on that, particularly <laughs> for people who are not familiar with gun usage. Um the science backs up your mom. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Sure. Because the likelihood of something terrible happening with that gun is much higher than the likelihood of you saving each other in the event of a home invasion. Right, right. Right. Because you were never going to get a carry permit here in New York exactly. for that gun anyway. So it was going to sit at home, right. probably unused in your dresser. And more than it likely... It puts us at higher risk. It does put you at higher risk. And, sure. and I actually have a friend in Queens who's... Um, got a family member who was killed wow. in, in a very similar situation in Nebraska. Wow. And he was a gun owner all his life, and that gun was there to protect him, and it was used against, against him. him. Well, and that's a very of often crime. thing. I mean, there's a lot of statistics, and I don't know them off my top of my head, and you may have a better understanding of those stats, but that people who have guns in their house are more likely to be killed by their own gun, that's more likely to have an accident where they that's get correct. injured by their own gun, and especially in the context of domestic violence, we see that that's a right. lot of weapons are used um, in that context as well. Uh, so I was hoping that you could speak about that. Sure. But I was um, also curious about um, how you got involved with the issue in the first place. 
great question. I actually, um, you know, I think Sandy Hook gave us all pause, you know, any parent certainly at that moment in time because, you know, when I was younger, we had Columbine, we had a number of other high-profile massacres that really didn't affect me. I have to say that. They were not in New York. They were happening in other places, Virginia Tech, you know. And um, all of these things happen, and they accumulate. And then I went ahead and had a baby in 2007. And uh, 2008. <laughs> um, yeah, I should remember. But my son had been at school for all of three months. He was in pre-K. And life was great. And then... December 14th happened, and I had a knot in my stomach, curled up on my couch in fetal position as reports came in from Sandy Hook, and all I could do was weep for these first graders. It was all I could do. I was literally paralyzed. I went and got my son from school. I didn't let him leave my sight, you know, for many, many days and weeks after that. Um, I felt so helpless and so hopeless, and I knew that as a gun owner, as the details came out, there was so much that went down there that should not have been happening. There was so, so much to it. And I probably would have still sit, you know, just stayed very sad about Sandy Hook until Wayne LaPierre got on the air exactly one week after and told us the problem was Hollywood and the problem was video games and the solution is more guns in more schools. Oh, God. That's what moved me. So I actually frequently thank Wayne for that because mm. it got me off my couch. Mm, it yes. got me invested in this because with my son's school career had just started. And I thought there's no way I can go through 18 years, 22 years of his education yeah. being being more guns around him everywhere he goes. No. And, and I don't think that makes any of us more free. It, it really doesn't. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. So, you know, that, that really speaks to the emotional side of things. Um, and it, it does take us to feel some way attached to stuff to get involved. But, you know, good kudos to you and good for you that you finally, you know, you started taking action. You're doing so much work now. And we definitely commend that. I just wanted to add a comment to something that you said or way earlier to go back to about the fact that those people who are in favor of, of better gun laws uh, um, are also people who own... And yes. or use guns. Now, yes. I don't own any guns, but I do use guns. And I right. very much like to shoot for sport. And I go to the West Side Rifle Club here on 23rd Street in the Flatiron District very often. Um, I have been trained. I have taken, believe yes. it or not, the training class they give is an NRA training yes. ca- class. Sure. But I have taken NRA training classes. I know the proper way to use a firearm. I know the proper way to not use a firearm. In fact, the first question that we were asked in the first day we took the class, which was he held up a gun which was clearly did not have the magazine on it. And he said, is this gun loaded? And everybody in the class said, no. And I said, of course the gun is loaded. And he said, right answer, because you always have to presume that the gun is loaded, because even if the magazine out there could be one in the chamber, right? Right. So, you know, I think that there's a misconception and there's a, it's always goes back to the people who yell the loudest seem to always be the ones that are heard. Correct. And the people yelling the loudest are the people who are like, the Second Amendment says there shall not be restrictions on any guns. And basically, they're like, LaPierre, guns, 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 guns for everybody. Yeah. Everybody needs a right. gun, you know. And that's right. just incorrect. And so we have to be the louder ones, right. the people who own and use guns. And we have to say, no, those people don't represent me. So I, I have a quick Agreed. question. So, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because 
because I, I this is not coming from a <laughs> this is coming from a presumption. Um, but I, I remember hearing something about the fact that some of these mass shootings that have taken place, maybe most of them, I don't know, the, these like major, you know, like Aurora or um, I don't think Columbine, but some of these major shootings that have taken place have been were by people that were using legal guns. Um, I don't know if yes. that's yeah. So yes. I mean, and that so that's scary, right? Because there's these right. two different types of right. gun debates. One is the you know iron pipeline where these, there's illegal guns going through that people are getting illegally, and another is that people are getting their guns legally. And maybe that's the, there's the answer right there is that mm-hmm. we just need stricter laws and we need to be able to regulate them more heavily. But you know, what do you say about that with people that yeah. have guns that they've gone through the proper channels to get and then use them in this way? And why, you know, maybe the bigger question is why do people besides hunters, you know, people like yourself own guns to begin with? Right. Well, in my case, I mean, my husband is a hunter, so we have that. Yeah. My dad was as well. You know, the guns are in my home. They are secured yes. at all times. They are locked up 24-7 unless they're in use. They always will be. My son, who is six, does not know they are there. I have no need at this point to let a six-year-old boy handle a live firearm. That will come. And we laugh, right? Except go on Facebook. Yeah. Because there are people very proud of teaching their three-year-olds how to shoot. Oh, there was that that girl that that shot her instructor. Oh, yeah. Now, that was awful. I've seen stuff on the internet where people are putting a gun, and maybe it's unloaded, I don't know, um, in the hands of, I've seen guns in the hands of babies. Babies. The baby is in the the carriage. That's ridiculous. And they're like like taking a picture of their baby with a gun and putting it on Facebook. That is ridiculous. And you know what's more ridiculous? The likes. Right. Yeah. Oh. right. No, yeah, I, I gun, gun owners are going on there saying, "Yeah, way to go." Son right. Young. Sometimes I think these people are so crazy that they wouldn't pass a background check, and that's why they're against the background check. It's really unfortunate, you know. And, and I try to make the point very clearly that legislation alone is not going to solve our gun violence problem in no, America. It isn't. When you bucket out gun deaths, right, which are hovering around thirty-three thousand a year now, which is just a you cannot even wrap your mind around a number that big. I know I can't. So two thirds of that are suicide. That has mm-hmm. its own set of issues attached to it, which I could talk to a great length and it would fill up an entire show. Mm-hmm. You've got homicides. So somewhere around eleven thousand is what we can expect. That's, you know, around a thousand people a month. Wow. Getting killed in this Jeez. country. Then you have accidents and, and other tragedies. Now the accident part, talk to me because I track Every child shooting in this country, every unintentional, I won't say accidental, child shooting of children under 16. Do you know we cannot go a day Mm. in this country without a kid getting access to a loaded, unlocked gun? Why is that? That speaks to the responsibility and the culture that needs changing. The same way that Mothers Against Drunk Driving came out and said, we got to get better laws. We have to, you know get on better footing legislatively, we also have to change the culture. Yeah, Friends we do. don't let friends dr- drive drunk, right? Because when I was in college, they did. Right. Wow. So I think that's I mean, a great listen, in a generation. It, 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 that point. just happened in Arizona. There was in this suburban area, this two year old boy, yes. he was being supervised by his yes. grandmother and his aunt. He was with his seven year old brother and he found a gun in bed sheets on the bed, shot himself gun. in the mm. face. It happened again at Walmart. This woman, she was shopping with her baby son in the carriage. He reached into he reached into um 
the bag, her mother, he reached into his mother's purse, found a gun and shot and killed his mother no. in Walmart. This is happening. This happens like 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 Corlette said, this happens at least once a day. And I've been reading about it a couple times a month. You had the big sensational stories. If and I'm it's not horrible. mistaken, they found a loaded gun. Capitol Police found a loaded gun in John Boehner's sweet oh, yeah. bathroom the other they, day that they, there was a, a toddler. Child, a, a child, child found, found the gun and with Capitol Police. No, they did. Um, and you know what? I want to. We, we're going to have to wrap the, the segment up in a few more minutes. But before we do, we, let's talk solutions. One yes, of the solutions please. is this big march that's taking place here in New York City in Brooklyn, Saturday, May 9th. Can you speak to us about this march and how people can get information about this? It's such a wonderful thing. I um, It's a march that's being hosted and organized by Moms Demand Action, who have just done tremendous stuff. They're one of the first groups I joined, not not the only one, but one of the first that I joined after Sandy Hook and Wayne. And uh, they organized this march, and it's just gotten bigger and better every year. This is the third consecutive one, and it's going to be massive, and we invite everyone to show up. Every I have met the most amazing people, you know, through this accidental activism as we call it mm. you know because I I didn't when I was in college I wasn't doing what you guys are doing and you know running my life I wasn't an activist until this combination of events so right. uh, we march across the Brooklyn Bridge we call for we want to bring attention to the problem because even though New York has good and reasonable gun safety laws including the New York Safe Act which I support um, we still have this problem we have Guns are cutting down our youth. Guns are affecting our communities. Guns are paralyzing and traumatizing children on a daily basis in this country. When are we going to do something about it? Right. We have great legislators. We want to thank them because God knows the NRA and those insane people are going to be calling them when they try to pass common sense initiatives yep. and take a stand. So why aren't they hearing from us? And and I fault us for that as mm-hmm. a community. Like we have to not be so ambivalent and just accept this as a fact of life. Because when you delve into it, as I did after Sandy Hook, you find out that it's not that we have good laws happening nationally. It's that we have this quilted, weird patchwork that has so many loopholes and so many opportunities for people to exploit them, either for profit or for other motives, um, that it's no wonder that we have the the gun violence problem we do. And there's so much we can do. Mm. New York has legislation pending. Um, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence is another group I'm with. And they're supporting things like a safe storage bill for New York State. Believe it or not, you can leave a loaded gun within proximity of a child in much of New York State, and there's no penalty. There's no penalty for that. New York City has safe storage ordinances. Albany does as well. But when I tell you not a day goes by in this country that a child doesn't happen upon an unlocked gun, that's the truth. And somebody gets hurt. What time is the march um, starting this Saturday and where? Because I want to be there. That is an excellent question. I have to check the time unless someone calling in knows it. Um, is it on the Facebook bel- page, maybe on, on a website? It is on the Facebook page for Moms Demand Action. All you do is type in on Facebook, Moms Demand Action, space New York, NY, and you'll get the page. Um, I can also email it to you. And momsdemandaction.org is the website for anyone who doesn't use Facebook. Okay. Um, and it's highly promoted and highly visible on both of their pages. Um, I apologize. No, no, no. Because <laughs> I'm just like, I, I need to find out because I want to be Bridge there. Plaza. Um, okay. On Saturday, May 9th. So let's cross our fingers for good weather. But it doesn't matter because me and those moms marched in the height of 
January on Ooh. Martin Luther King Day in wow. 2013, weeks after Sandy Hook, and we froze our butts off and we didn't care. <laughs> so this is that's gonna, passion. This is easy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And you guys should all get out there and get to the march. I, I just wanted to make a final comment about this before we wrap it up. Before I let Selena wrap it up and we go into the the quickie. Um, but even Anton Scalia in the Heller decision, which is the decision which gave people the individual right of ownership, um, and you know, essentially said that the Second Amendment doesn't just apply to militias. And Anton Scalia writes, like most rights, the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. It is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. For example, concealed weapons prohibitions have been upheld under the amendment or state analogs. The court opinion should not be taken to cast out on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools, government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So this Absolutely is not right. to, to have these types of laws. And I know you said that, that the laws are just not enough, but the laws right. in in and of themselves, depending on the way they're written, are not going to violate the Second Amendment. I Absolutely mean, they, not. they fall Absolutely into not. exactly what Scalia is talking about here, about where you can carry them and, and conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms, which is essentially reads background checks. Colette, can you, can you just um, um, tell us again how people can contact you um, one more time? Sure. I mean, me personally. Or the organization. Or the organization. Moms Demand Action Facebook page. MomsDemandAction.org website, NYAGV.org for New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. And I really recommend that people check out the Brady campaign and their Asking Saves Kids campaign. Um, this is We Want every mom in New York City and every mom in New York State and throughout the country, when their kids have playdates and sleepovers, start asking about guns in the home. If they are there, are they secured? Right. Wow, no, that's yeah. a that's a that's a great point because so many people are so lax, like even with the guns in their own homes. And that's what leads to so many tragedies. Correct. But again, I think that, you know, and I thank you for being that example of how it's time for us all to wake up. It shouldn't take a bullet coming through our window or someone dying in our family yeah. or immediate circle for us to finally care. I mean, this is happening every single day to one child in America. And that's one child too much. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to the quickie and we are back this is Alyssa Fuchs I'm here with Selena Hill and Jackie Cohen and I'm about to give you the quickie and it's going to be quick and I'm going to be talking thus fast thus so the name thus the, the name quickie. keep following so today I thought it meant something else yeah <laughs> well it, it, it means that too Channeling Stanley over <laughs> right? there you know, right <laughs> we're, we're going to get we'll get into that off the air anyways here's the quickie and um, it, today we're talking about same sex marriage this week uh, the same sex marriage finally went to the Supreme Court uh, it's been a long time coming there's been all these lower court rulings. If you don't remember, there was a whole bunch of states where the district courts said that these uh, bans on same-sex marriage were unconstitutional, and then the court said that they were not going to review those decisions, so that effectively legalized uh, same-sex marriage in those states, uh, bringing the number of states, I believe, that recognize same-sex marriage up to 33. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it, it may be 34. Um, anyways, so what happened was the Supreme Court essentially said they were not going to entertain the larger issue uh, of this until a court, uh, a district court, a federal court upheld one of these bans. Um, and that happened. And in the Sixth Circuit, and I believe also in the Fifth Circuit, they upheld these state bans um, on same-sex marriage. And these courts said that it was not unconstitutional uh, 
to say that same sex uh, these states did not have to grant same sex cards a marriage license. These uh, plaintiffs or what we'll call petitioners, once you get to the Supreme Court level, they then brought an appeal to the Supreme Court and they said to the Supreme Court, you need to resolve this question. So on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments after months and months of briefing. Uh, If you don't know. Uh, a lot of groups, the petitioners and the respondents, which are the two parties, uh, or you could call them the plaintiffs and the defendants, if that's easier for you, they wrote their own briefs, and then other people wrote other briefs that are called friend of the court briefs, and then ultimately on Tuesday they heard the oral arguments, and they were going to answer two questions um, that they're going to give a decision on in June. The first question is whether or not states have the right to ban same-sex couples from getting married or whether banning same-sex couples from getting married violates the federal U.S. Constitution. The second question that they're going to answer, they only need to get to if they answer, uh, depending on what they answer in the first question, because the second question is, is assuming that it is legal for states to say we're not going to grant you a marriage license and it's not unconstitutional for states to say we're not going to allow same-sex couples to get married in this state, do those states then have to recognize uh, same-sex couples who have been married out of state? Um, So... There's been a lot of chatter about what may happen. Those are the two legal issues. Um, and, and as I just mentioned, if they, depending on how they answer the first question, they may not need to get to the second question. So if the Supreme Court comes out and says that it is a violation of the Constitution to ban same-sex couples from getting married uh, because it's a form of discrimination under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, then they never need to answer the second question because that's going to effectively legalize gay marriage in the entire country because mm-hmm. then every state law that bans same-sex couples from getting married will be null and void. And all those states will have to go forward and they'll have to issue marriage licenses. However, if they do not answer that first question, if they say that it is constitutional for these states to ban same-sex marriage, then they're going to have to get to the second question, which is, okay, let's say... Michigan wants that or uh, use Indiana. Um, Let's say Indiana wants to say we're banning same sex couples from getting a marriage license. But then a couple from Indiana goes to New York on vacation and they get a marriage license and then they come back to Indiana. Does Indiana then have to recognize their marriage? So obviously the court only needs to answer that question if they allow these bans to stand. Um, A lot of people are speculating what might happen. The swing vote is seen as Justice Kennedy. Um, Some people are saying, well, Justice Kennedy answered a lot of, asked a lot of very hard questions during the first part of the arguments. But during the second part of the arguments, he was unbelievably quiet, which leads a lot of people to think that he already has his mind made up, that he's going to go with the four more liberal justices on the first question. And so he didn't ask a lot of questions in the second arguments because he already kind of is like well we're not going to need to get to that you had a question one thing i found really interesting is the argument um i forgot which justice said it but they said it at least once and they were like um so i don't think that the court has the authority to make a decision and to change like the definition of marriage something that's been embedded in our society since the beginning of time and i don't think we should be the ones to change it and it was like i don't know like can you further what yeah, do you think so about that Alyssa? There, you know the, the response that the lawyer gave um, Mary Bonotto, who was arguing the case on the he- on behalf of the petitioner, she said that we're not looking to change the institution of marriage. We're just looking to join the institution of marriage. Uh, obviously, there was some back and forth about that. Um, and 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 but there's another interesting thing that is going on, um, which is you may actually see Roberts join the majority and, and write his own narrow opinion because Roberts um, asked a really important question, and he said, "Well, isn't this just a simple?" 
case of sex discrimination. Right. He's like, if if Bob wants to marry Mary, then Bob can marry Mary. But if Bob wants to marry Steve, he can't marry Steve. So aren't we just discriminating on the basis of sex? And then this is an easy question. So some people actually think that Roberts is going to join. It's called a concur- a plurality opinion, which is he's going to join the majority in his vote, but then he's going to write a separate opinion on narrower, narrower grounds, which essentially says that it's sex discrimination. Um, now, obviously, the respondents argue on the other side. They said it's, it's not sex discrimination because Bob can still get married that we're not stopping Bob from getting married Bob just has to marry Mary so he's not being discriminated against based on his sex so that's their counter argument Um, I mean there was a lot of really great quotes I urge you to go listen to the audio file of it I mean one of the best things that happened was there was a big emphasis on procreation and and Ginsburg jumped in and said well what happens if a 70 year old straight couple wants to go get married like uh, you know obviously she didn't say it but like obviously they can't procreate and the lawyer for the other side was like well, the man could still procreate, Ew. like completely ignoring <laughs> the fact that like Ginsburg was saying like his wife is 70 also. So right. she clearly cannot have kids. But um, I'm trying to be optimistic and I'm hoping that they rule in favor of marriage. But um, what even, do you think it's like a 50 50 chance? You know, I do. It's really hard to tell. I think it's more like 60 40, maybe okay. 70 30 in favor of marriage. But I think even if they don't go the full Monty, that they're going to answer the second question saying that. Even if the states can ban gay marriage, they have to recognize out-of-state marriages. But that saying that, that would lead to so much more litigation. Then there's going to be all this protracted litigation and more cases that go back up to the court. And it's not going to end. And I think that if they were smart, they're probably just going to end it now. So I'm going to try and be optimistic. On that note, we really, really have to get going. But we will be back next week right here on 90.3 FM WHCR Harlem Radio. Definitely. Have a great afternoon. And definitely check us out on our podcast again lyvbhradio.com and thanks again for our in-studio guest Colette Martin for joining us here and we'll be back next week.